Good morning, everybody. I'm Seth. I'm one of the pastors, and I get to teach this text this morning. But before I do, an uh, important announcement. In two weeks, it is Easter Sunday. So I don't know if you guys are big calendar people or not, planner people or not, but if you're not, uh, now you know it's Easter and you're running out of time. So if you've got a lot of, a lot of uh, plastic eggs to stuff full of candy, better get started now. That's always surprisingly tedious. So get going on that. We're doing five services in here. It'll be our first time doing, Chris, doing, uh, not Christmas, first time doing Easter morning in this room. So check that out. Um, 7, 8, 15, 9, 45, 11, 15, and 12, 30. If you haven't made plans yet, now is the time. Today is the time. Uh, formalize it, finalize it get it going. Uh, if you scan that QR code, it'll take you straight to the RSVP page. And it's also a great thing to send to people if you want to invite them. Uh, so there's your warning. You have two weeks, uh, 14 days, 14 times 24 hours. That's how many uh, you got. So check that out. Um, I'm teaching Isaiah 54. Uh, this is, uh, you know, it's important to know what came before Isaiah 54, which is Isaiah 53. That's how the numbers in this works. Um, but really, it's, it's important to understand here that what's going on in Isaiah 54 is significant. It's, it's God telling his people about their sure and certain future, right? We talk a lot about in the church what the cross saves us from, that because Christ was crucified for you, you don't get punished for your sins. And that's great news. That's Isaiah 53. The way it ends is he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That's the end of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 54 is not just talking about what we're saved from, but what we get now that we are saved. Not not just what we don't get, but what we do get. This is all about our inheritance. At the end of Isaiah 54, it says this. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. That word heritage could be translated inheritance. This is what you get. This is what's coming to you. This is, you married the maker of the universe. You are the bride. He is the groom. There is no prenup. You are absolutely certainly getting this, right? And so that's what we're talking about today, that our sure and certain future because of the cross. You know, on Saturday, I went and took the kids to the new Costco, which is like what you do when you have two kids. You like, let's go check out that new Costco, which is like the most... Southeast Valley suburban thing you could possibly do. I, I, had, I had both kids, you know, and it's always easier to parent out of the house than in the house. Let's go do something, you know. And so we're checking out the, the samples, which is like the top tier in entertainment for a one-year-old and a three-year-old. What are they going to be? What are the samples going to be? You know, building anticipation. What samples are they going to have? You know, will they, will they be ready to go? And we get there, and the first sample we get is this sweet gentleman, and he's giving out samples of walnuts. And... Uh, and I pull up, I was like, do we have samples? And he's like, do your kids have any nut allergies? And I said, we will find that out together. <laughs> and I think that is how we as Christians feel about our future with God all the time. I don't know what it's like, but we'll find out together. God's telling us, like, are, are we going to do this for the, our whole life or for a little bit? We'll find out together. And there's just like this weird sense that the future's not guaranteed, that it's not certain, that we're going to discover it as we go. And obviously, like, in the details, obviously, in like next week and two months from now, that is true. We'll, we'll figure it out together. But when you think about an eternal horizon, when you think about uh, the horizon for our returns, not just being daily but weekly, but 10,000 years from now, I want you to know there is no uncertainty 
There is no we'll figure it out together. There is no we'll find out together. There is this is the inheritance of the servants of the Lord. This is not possible. This is not probable. This is certain that this is what the people who Christ has died for get. And so we're going to talk today about our inheritance we get from the Lord. We're going to talk about three things we inherit and, three th- and one thing that we do not ever get um, from the Lord. So let me pray and then I'll talk us through this text. Uh, Lord, have mercy on us. I do ask that you will help us develop a greater affection for our future with you. Uh, that we would look forward to uh, the, the time in which we spend eternity with you that we would look forward to the time in which uh, the, the difficulty of sin and suffering and disappointment is wiped away and that we have unfettered communion, connection with you and with each other. I pray that we would uh, allow this hope of future paradise to root us, make us secure, and help us be faithful in the time to come. And then we pray, amen. Amen. So there's a handful of images here in this prophetic poetry you're supposed to inhabit and uh, feel them and then uh, be implicated by them. And so the first one we get is that we will inherit or we will get abundant offspring, lots of offspring. Now, now again, I, wanna, I want us to take our minds and put it in these uh, exiled Israelites, right? That hundreds of years before this, God took a man named Abraham and said, he took him outside and he said, look at the stars. Your offspring will be as numerous or more numerous than these stars. Abraham went, wow, that's so much offspring. Now, that, now that's not just about having a lot of kids. That's about legacy. That's about impact. That's about significance. That's about not living a wasted life. It's not just about children. It's about legacy and impact. And so he's saying, you are going to make a huge difference. You're going to create a huge wake. You're going to create a huge wake. And the people after you who follow me, uh, the, the people who trust in the Lord will be numerous like the stars in the heavens. It's not just about you're going to have a lot of kids and that makes you like a Genghis Khan type significant person. This is saying you, you're going to leave a mark that's going to last. And then a couple hundred years later, you have these Israelites who are marginalized. They are oppressed. They are uh, not considered significant. They are making basically no impact on world culture. And they are under the thumb of their oppressors. And you imagine how these Israelites are going, okay, so God promised that our offspring and our legacy would be significant. And now we're exiled and nothing, and no, can I trust God's promises? Can I actually believe him to deliver on what he's going to do? Can I actually bank my future on the fact that he said this is going to happen and now we're like in, the, in this terrible position with no money, no security, no, like no, no power to account. Like we don't even have, we can't influence culture. We have nothing. But in Isaiah 54, this promise that because of the cross, because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, because of that, um, he, he speaks to this reality using this metaphor of infertility. Now, I, I understand, like both in my household and my family closeness, I know a lot of people in this room, like the, the devastation of, of every single month, disappointment, 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 and you have hopes and then 
you, you crash and it's devastation. If hope, and, and eventually it's just easier to stop hoping and to get calloused and to put that aside and say, maybe that's, that's not for me. Maybe, and this self-protection from future disappointment is the way that we manage the disappointment. Just eliminate expectation, eliminate desire. That's, that's the human mode to try to not feel the weight of this reality. And God sees that, understands that, and is using that experience as the metaphor for what Israel must be feeling. So this promise of fulfillment here is not God telling every individual who struggled with infertility or at least um, under fertility. He's not telling them that's all gonna go away and have, have unrealistic or high, he, but he is saying, I see your pain, I know the devastation, I know the cycle of disappointment, and he's using that as a metaphor here, saying, sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. So he's saying that there's this, Israel has been infertile. They have not reproduced like they thought they would. The fruit of their faithfulness has not replicated. And so it's disappointment, we're not getting what we wanted. We're not getting what we hoped. We're not, we're also, I thought God was for this and yet he's not made it happen. So it's not just, can I trust God to bring about the future? It's like, does God even want the same things as me? It seems like he, this is something that he wants. What's the deal here? And God is saying, look, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, there's gonna be a change. And the barren one will rejoice and sing. He says, here he says, this is the promise in verse two. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. He's saying, look, I see you. I see your lack of reproduction and I'm telling you, your house is too small. Put an addition on that tent. Get a bigger curtain. Do something more. Do, like, you, you're not prepared for the way in which I'm gonna fulfill this. It is significant and I need you to prepare by building bigger house. Now Israel, this remnant, a small group of people, unable, would never have envisioned this reality that eventually the faithful Israelites would have gotten down to just one and his name is Jesus. 2,000 years ago, now I just looked it up this morning, there are 2.2 billion Christians on earth. Now we, now, we could debate how many of them are real Christians, which is totally fine. And I, you know, the Lord knows that. We don't know that. But my point is, tiny remnant, exiled, oppressed, billions across the face of the earth, that at the power of the resurrection and the sending of the Spirit, that the way that which Israel failed to reproduce, now God's people have reproduced that the mission of the church has gone forth, that Christ is building his kingdom and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, that any pessimism about the future of God's people has no place when you actually understand the power and weight of God in bringing about his will on the earth in this promise of Isaiah 54. That we can read the statistics and look about the church in decline and get all like fussy about, I don't know, are God's people gonna make it? And that is all unbiblical faithlessness. I'm telling you 
that if you actually believe that this is the inheritance, not the possible inheritance of God's people, God's people by the Spirit and the kingdom are going out over the face of the earth. They are making disciples. They are reproducing. The tents are not big enough. The harvest is ripe. The workers are few. But their harvest is ripe. And so, those of us who have maybe have been under-fertile or infertile or been frustrated by our ability to physically reproduce, we have to understand how even in the New Testament, there's this broadening of the promise from just biological offspring to spiritual offspring, recognizing that we all have this role to play in making disciples, baptizing them, and teaching them to obey in the name of Jesus. And so, if you're looking for legacy, significance, impact, change that outlasts you, I want you to know that by the Spirit, the mission of the church is a certain and centerpiece fulfillment of what God has called you to do. This is not at all meant to be a minimization of the real and difficult disappointment that comes with infertility. This is meant to be a noticing of how disappointing that is, that God is empathizing with that sentiment and saying, I hear you, I see you, that is painful. That is the metaphor for which I'm even going to access the pain of Israel being in exile. And so I hope that as we consider the offspring of God's people, those who are Abraham's offspring by faith, that we understand that we have responsibility but it's not a contingent possibility that the churches aren't big enough, there's not enough of them, that the God's people have to keep preparing that the Spirit is bringing people to himself. That's certainty, not a possibility. The next thing we get in our inheritance is stability, abundant stability. Anybody here prefer instability to stability? <laughs> Just the other week, uh, maybe this last week, uh, we had our pretend spring break staycation thing and I, you know, I have a little seat for my son on my bike and we go for a bike ride and it's, you know, it's been rainier than usual and there's always construction places and so Jay and I were riding on the, the, the cruiser which is you know top speed four miles an hour beach cruiser thing uh, and we're going through this and there's all this mud and Jay's like go through the mud you know and I'm like this is the opposite of what you should go through mud on, you know, like it, and I'm like, okay, fine, you know, and overestimate myself, go straight in the mud, get stuck, tip over, you know, and now I'm up to my calf in mud, and Jay's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, it's not stable, like, it's, it's loose ground, he's like, just keep pedaling, and I'm like, you don't understand, you know, and so then I'm frustrated that the three-year-old doesn't understand, like, dynamics of physics, you know, and so we get an argument, we, we got out of the mud, but it's just like this, um, then he's like, go back in the mud. I'm like, I don't want to go back in the mud. I'm going to go back on the street. I bought a cruiser, not a whatever thing goes on mud, mountain bike thing, you know, like a, a, a real person uh, bike. Um, so he, uh, we, we know what it's like to have unstable footing. We know what it's like to feel like we have enough momentum and then all of a sudden we're not. We know what it's like to, at, with one text message, feel dysregulated and discombobulated and go like, well, this changes everything. We know what it's like to get information and to have to reimagine the future because of it. We know what it's like to feel like you know, world markets and global situations are constantly in flux. We know it, like, we don't have to, like, work very hard to, like, emotionally connect with instability. And here's what, uh, again, Israel in exile, being pushed around by the nations, not knowing will we be totally oppressed, will we be partially oppressed, will we be, like, and so they're looking for this stability. And here's part of the promise that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, he's saying, look, the mountains might depart. This is 54 verse 10. Mountains might depart. 
when do mountains go away? You know, I mean, you think about like the landmarks that you look to, it's like, oh, there's the Santan Mountains, there's, you know, the, the Flathead Mountain, whatever it's called, the Superstition Mountain. Like there's, these are like, these are how we, we orient ourselves using mountains. And he's saying the mountains might even depart. He's saying, I am more dependable than the mountain. Like even mountains, sometimes like, whoops, that was a volcano. Yeah, it's different now, you know. Hills might get moved. But my steadfast love will not depart from you, right? We understand the fact that the only constant is change. We see that cultures change. We see that people change. We see that societies change. We see that uh, we change, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. But if you want to understand how to like feel security in the midst of instability, to feel like at ease and connected and grounded, you have to look at something beyond even the mountains. That one of the characteristics of God is that he is the unchanging one. He does not change. I, the Lord, do not change. And here's what's crazy about that is it's not just that he doesn't change, but it's also that his affection for us does not change. That is insane. We don't even have a bucket for that. What's your favorite food? Changes week to week. How much do you like your kids? What time is it? I don't know. Like, <laughs> what's your favorite hobby? I don't know. What year is it? Like, we, it, we're so used to being in flux based on how other people change and we change, and, and we, we don't want that to be the case. We'd like to be more stable than we are. Here's this is just like, as the, mount, the mountains may depart, the hills may be moved, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant peace will not be removed. We are trained from a young age by even the most loving of parents that love is conditional. Do the wrong thing, withdraw. Don't conform immediately. Shameful disapproval, look on the face. Betray my expectations, ah, after all I've done for you, the guilt. Even the most loving of parents. Like we, we learn that affection is conditional. We learn that warmth is conditional. We learn that to, to be approved of, I must walk in the right way. And I, I'm not saying this to, to shame any of the parents in the room. I'm one of them. But it's like, it's, I am a human who's sinful and changing. And I'm doing the best job I can not to send those messages to my children. And I'm certain I'm sending those messages to my children. And God says, I'm more dependable than the mountains. My steadfast love and affection for you does not change. We, we are, and what happens is when we learn that that affection is conditional, we then protect ourselves from the future loss of affection. We hedge our bets. We play four cards, but keep the fifth one private. We have exit plans, plan Bs, contingencies. We harbor in ourselves that sense of, but they might leave. I've heard that like an, there's an abandonment complex deep in our bones. And so, hearing from the Lord who says, mountains might depart, my love for you will not depart, we go, sure. That sounds nice. I would like to like, 
like I can believe that up here, but like in my gut of guts to believe that this is not probable or possible, this is certain, I don't even really have a category for that. And so we are posturing, protecting, distancing, withdrawing, not sure. We had a conference here a couple weeks ago, a guy named Dr. Kurt Thompson, uh, MD, PhD, psychiatrist, wrote a lot of books. He's doing a training on parenting. You know, expect this academic, high-level, strategic, uh, bring the notepad, take notes thing. And here's what he said. He said, the most important thing you will ever do as a parent is learn to receive God's love for you. And I talked to a couple of the parents. One of them was myself as I was talking to myself. <laughs> and it's like, that's too simple and impossible at the same time. Like, just to fully open myself. Like, because when you receive someone's affection, you are opening yourself up to possible wounding. That's vulnerability, to be woundable. To let your, like, to no longer manage possible future loss, but to let myself be possibly devastated. Like that, that's what true affection reception requires. And here God is saying, I'm more dependable than the mountains. I think that like the core task of Christian discipleship, the core task of this church as we try to grow in faithfulness as followers of Jesus is that we all would let ourselves be fully receptive to God's love and affection for us. So often we think the main thing is to grow in love for Jesus. And I think that's, a good thing. I think that's a secondary thing to grow in receiving the love of Jesus. That, like coming to grips with how much God loves us is a lifelong process. And it might become a process into eternity. I don't know, I haven't been there. But at least so far it's been a lifelong process for me. You're looking for stability in the midst of instability. There is nowhere to look the best husband, the best wife, the best brokerage person, the best foundation layer, the best mountain climber, the best church leader, the best whatever, all of it just absolutely is terrible compared to the affection of Jesus for you. Like, isn't that wild? It's not just that God doesn't change, it's that his feelings towards you don't change. I think if everyone in the room like did nothing but meditate on that for the next year, we'd be a healthier church in a year. It's so simple and so impossible. And here he's saying, receive my love. Next thing you get is abundant security, right? Like, um, like security is something that's easy to take for granted until you don't have it. And then all of a sudden you go, where'd that go? Like uh, we moved in this new house. I mean, it's new to us. It was built in 1999, which for the Southeast Valley is like ancient. Uh, but for the rest of the world is like, basically brand new, right? So, but I, you know, this like little, the, the handle on the lock and the, with this one of those big front doors, it's like, I don't know, nine feet, weighs a lot of pounds. It just like stopped working and then it wouldn't shut. So my front door wouldn't shut. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, that's what being exposed feels like. <laughs> you know, some random teenager slash or a mosquito could just come right through. I don't know which is worse, you know, and I don't like it. So, so I'm like, one of my 
one of my biggest weaknesses is I think everything's more simple than it is. And so I'm like, I'll just fix this. And so next thing I know, the door is off the hinges and it's really heavy and I can't put it back on. So then I'm calling someone saying, hey, could you uh, come fix this door that's off the hinges? Why did you take off the hinges? I was like, I don't know. It seemed like computers, you just turn them off, turn them on. And that door is like, oh, just take it off, put it back on. I'm not defending the decision. I'm saying it was made. So here we are. He's like, is it an emergency? I'm like, it is an emergency. We may just tinfoil my front door and just hope nobody feels like robbing me tonight. It's like, it's like the most emergency. I don't know. I don't want someone coming in my house. And so this like feeling of like no boundary, no protection, no front door. Israel is in exile. The, the gates of Jerusalem have been destroyed. The, there's no, te- like this is, it's all bad. They're like, they've felt this vulnerability, this exposure for generations now. And here's what God says, the promise. He's like, you've been insecure. You've, you've not had protection. You've not had boundaries. You've not had this, this, uh, this guard. And, and what he says here in, um, in uh, this, this security, he says, well, look, I'm going to give you, even storm-tossed, not comforted, I'm going to set your stones in antimony. I'm going to lay your foundations with sapphires, is verse 12. I'll make your pinnacles uh, of agate, or agate, how do you say that, Matthew? Agate. I don't know what it is. I misspoke last service, and he told me I said it wrong, and I forgot how to say it. So. <laughs> your gates of carbuncles and your wall of precious stones. I'm going to rebuild your walls, and I'm going to do it with luxury and with excess. Like he's, I'm not just going to get you a front door. I'm going to get you like the best, nicest security front door that projects uh, abundance. I'm gonna, I'm, it's going to be a symbol. I'm not just putting concrete and barbed wire. Uh, this is, this is uh, sapphires and gold. Your walls are going to be great. Not only that, um, what he goes on to say in verse 16, I've created the smith who blows the fire of the coals and produced the weapons for its purpose. I've also created the ravager to destroy. But no weapon formed against you will succeed. I make the, the swords, I make the guns, I make the walls, I'm gonna make you the best wall and anybody who's trying to come at you, no weapon formed against you is gonna succeed. Absolute, certain security. Now this is again, not a promise for next week. Someone, uh, if they form a knife, like if they try to knife you, they might succeed. I'm just telling you that. that that's just not a promise for next week. This is a promise about our certain future, blessed state, no threats, that there is a moment when you'll be able to fully and absolutely let your guard down and you won't be at risk. Some of you haven't let your guard down in years, months. You don't know what it's like to not feel somewhat insecure or somewhat under siege or somewhat under threat and you're on like level yellow all the time. And at a minimum, that is exhausting. And he's saying, I'm going to build your walls so great. You're going to have no concerns about weapons. You'll be able to finally let that nervous system relax. You can finally take deep breaths. You can finally breathe deep. What would that be like? Absolute security. No possibility of seizure. Nobody, nobody's coming after you. Nobody can come after you. No anxiety about will I be okay? Maybe not next week, maybe not next month, but when you think about your eternal state, that is what it's going to be like. That is not possible, that is not probable, that is certain. The next thing we get, this is the last thing, this is what we don't get. We do not get abandoned. The title of this sermon is Abundance, Not Abandonment. 
an abundance of offspring, an abundance of security, an abundance of stability, and the absence of abandonment. This text is very confusing to Jewish commentators. They don't know what to do with it. It frustrates them. You have this God who's promising never to abandon you, never to forsake you. My, my affection for you is unconditional. It can't be changed. Then it says in verse 7, for a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I'll gather you. That kind of push-pull feels a little bit abusive. Right? I'll never abandon you, but I'll desert you for a little bit. Take me seriously, don't take me seriously. Verse 8, in overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I'll have compassion on you. Like, this guy seems like yellow flags, you know what I mean? I love you, I hate you, I'll be with you forever except for when I'm not. Overwhelming compassion and love, overflowing anger for a moment. Like, this feels like, I want to say, if you're dating someone like that, run away. Like, don't. <laughs> Don't, don't date them anymore. But you can, see, you can see why like a Jewish commentator would read this and be like, this, is God fickle like a human? Is he just emotional, tossed back and forth, feels one way, feels, what's going on here? And it's honestly not until the first and second century when Christian theologians who've just witnessed the wrath of God be poured out on the sun and then the victorious resurrection that these texts begin to make sense and take shape. That when Christ on the cross says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, you have forsaken me and the wrath of God is poured out on Jesus so that it's not poured out on us, that in overflowing anger for a moment, all the wrath of God's sin against our sin is poured out fully and finally once and for all so that now with everlasting love he has compassion on us, that this text makes no sense unless you interpret it in light of the cross of Jesus. That Christ was abandoned on the cross so that you and I never have to fear being abandoned by God. And here's what's crazy is if you think about ourselves as the bride of Christ, as the, if I'm like as a spouse to Jesus, I absolutely deserve a certificate of a divorce. <laughs> I've been unfaithful, gotten to bed with false gods, not upheld my part of the vows, misstepped, walked sideways, been a bad spouse. But yet God is saying, all of that I've poured out on Jesus. And this is why he's able to say here in verse four, fear not for you'll not be ashamed. If anybody has the power to shame you, it is God. To drag you into the light, to expose the worst parts of you, to rub your nose in it. Like other humans might shame you, that's true. It is awful. That feeling of embarrassment, of overexposure, of word getting out. And here God is saying, other people might do that to you, but me, whose opinion matters most, whose eyes matter most, I will not shame you. Do not be confounded, for you will not be disgraced. Verse four, he goes on to say, for you will forget the shame of your youth. How many of you right now if you could take a selective amnesia pill, would be like, yes. I don't remember those things. I don't want, like, I don't want to, like, that, like, underlying self-hatred for past thoughts, feelings, actions. I don't want, like, I don't want that to be a part of how, and God is saying, 
in the new creation, when all things are made new, and it's you and I in the blessed state, you're not going to remember those things. See, I feel like there's like this piece of me that's like 9,000 years into heaven. God's going to be like, oh yeah, self, well remember when you're 17? And I'm like, oh yeah, you're right. I guess I'll go sweep the porch. <laughs> like he's going to somehow leverage my sins against me for like, like, and that's what we're nervous about is like people using things against us. And God is saying, you're not even, I'm, I'm not going to bring it up. You'll forget the shame of your youth. I'm not here to rub your nose in it. I'm here to tell you, be not confounded. You'll remember no more. For the maker is your husband. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth, he is called. For glory has called you. Isn't that remarkable that you have this maker, our husband, the creator, the redeemer, the one who's abandoned Christ on the cross for our sake, risen him from the dead, and so we never have to fear being left by God. That that position, that centerpiece of our security, of knowing that the most important relationship in our life is an anchor, is a foundation, is stable, is secure, is the source of our legacy, that if we actually grip that, our capacity to be a, a transformed, transforming presence in our, in our life, in, in the lives of our neighbors and friends. Like this is, this is significant. And it's not because we haven't done shameful things. But it's because Christ didn't just die for our sin, but he also died for our shame. And I think we have a hard time grasping that. In Matthew 27, Matthew highlights the shame of Christ on the cross. He says this, and they stripped him, it's overexposure, and put a scarlet robe on him. There's mocking him, twisting together a crown of thorns. They put on his head and put a reed in his right hand like this pretend scepter. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. Nothing quite hits like the shame of like seeing someone mocked and then just the head wag. Can you believe this guy? And I think that's our deepest fear is that shame. That being known and then instead of being loved, being shamed. And our entire certain future inheritance God sees our deepest fear, addresses our deepest fear, and says, you won't be ashamed. You don't have to, you can put all your eggs in this basket and you'll not be embarrassed because of it. You can bet your future on this. This is not possible. This is not probable. This is certain. This is the inheritance of the servants of the Lord and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. That God doesn't just save us from our sin and shame, but it saves us for this perfect, beautiful, you will not have any desires unmet inheritance. You might not get it next month, you might not get it in 10 years, but if you think about a long enough investment horizon, you're all very safe. Let me pray. Jesus, help us believe this, help us grab hold of it. I pray that we would really be gripped by this hope. In your name we pray.
Amen.